We're looking at uh, John chapter 11 this morning. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. We're only going to try and get through 44 verses. <laughs> I know. Uh, my dad tells me that the Rangers match starts in an hour. And so, uh, yeah, I will be disowned as a son if I don't finish in that time. So I will. If I don't get there, I will stop and we'll continue it next week, I promise. Um, but uh, we're looking at John chapter 11. Um, let me just put on my timer, not that it means anything, but it uh, always gives people around me a little bit of confidence. 30 minutes and counting down. Um, <laughs> it normally gets to minus that. Um, what do you like with time? I find that uh, amongst ourselves, amongst our friends and amongst our families, people have different concepts of time. Have you found that? There's those people who are always right on time. It's almost like they sit outside your house and it's like military precision. And it's like, if they're going to meet you at six o'clock, at six o'clock, ding dong, they're right. And you're like, how do they do that? There's those people, and we call those people annoying. Um, <laughs> but even more annoying are the people who are always early. Can I get a good amen? You know, you're just, especially if you're not one of those people who's always prepared, super prepared. Or, and so you say to somebody, come around at 8 o'clock for supper, and you're just out of the shower, your hair's wet, you haven't even thought about putting out the tray back shit, and the doorbell rings, and you're standing there not wearing it and you're like, no, go away! You're early! And, and those people uh, you call annoying. And, uh, and then there's a third category, which if you're in... The first category you call annoying. If you're always on time, the third category are the people who are always late. Some people are always late. No matter what, they're always late. In one of my previous churches, I'll not tell you where it was, but it was in Lurgan, and uh, there was a family there, um, I wouldn't want to name them, but their name began with S and N, but Stevenson. Um, <laughs> but uh, Joy and Chris Stevenson, dear friends of mine, um, but they, they became known as the late Stevensons. Um, because you just knew that if the Stevensons were meeting you, they were going to be late. And so what you would do then is you would plan your time around that. So if Joy said, I'm meeting you for lunch at one, you'd be like, yeah, Joy, I'll meet you at one, but you'd show up at a quarter past one. And Joy would just be rolling in all flustered and sweating, you know, and you'd be like, yeah, I've been waiting 15 minutes for you, um, just to, to guilt her a bit. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a bit like, you know, when we, we go on holidays, um, I always say to Becky... I always say that we have to leave the house half an hour before we actually have to. Anybody else do that? Yeah? All the men. It's <laughs> only men. I always, you know, if we have to leave at noon, I'll be like, you have to leave just after 11, love. You know, if, I mean, half 11 at the latest. Because I know if I say that, we might get away by noon. As uh, Becky packs those 43 suitcases for the weekend trip that we're going on. Um, but I, 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 I've just learned over the years. Uh, and then there's the other side of the coin. There's, you know, like I said, there's those who are really punctual. And you get annoyed when people are late. You get irritated because you see it as a lack of respect for your time. You feel like they don't honor your time. And especially if they don't let you know. If they don't text you, if they don't phone you and say, you're running late and you're sitting there and you're thinking, how long do I give them before I teach them a lesson and leave? You know, and some of us it'll be five minutes, some of us it'll be 15 minutes. But uh, about, and when they arrive, you smile and you say, oh, no problem. But just wait to the next time. I'll show you. I'll be 45 minutes late and teach you a lesson. Time. Time. 
Today we're going to talk about time. And specifically we're going to talk about when God doesn't seem to show up on time. What happens when God seems late? What happens when God doesn't seem to show up when you think or expect he is going to show up? When he doesn't turn up when you need him? When his so-called perfect timing doesn't seem too perfect when you look at your clock and compare it to the clock that he must be running by. That's what we're going to think about in John chapter 11 as we look at the story of Lazarus. What happens when God seems late? Let's look at verse 1. 1 to 3. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. So when Jesus was on earth, there were really three groups of people who he had around him. There were the fans, the crowds, the people who showed up because they wanted something. They wanted a healing. They wanted to see a miracle. They just heard about him. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the crowds who came. They kind of just got caught up in the buzz and the hype around Jesus. He had no real relationship with them after they left. They were there for what they could get from him. So they were the fans. And then there were the followers. There were the 12 disciples, obviously. And then we read about the 72 that he sent out. We read about the 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. So there were another group of people not fans but followers who seemed to be more committed to Jesus and then there were his friends there were people who were just friends people that he just enjoyed hanging out with people he could relax with people he could just be himself with and chill out with and 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 just feel very much at home it's been said that there's some people who when you visit them they make you feel at home and there's other ones who make you wish you were at home. Um, Mary, Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus. They were the sort of people that he felt at home with. While Jesus was on earth he had no home of his own. He said the son of man has no place to lay his head. But if he had any place that came as close to home as it could be it would be the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we find him there at different times eating and hanging out and just enjoying their company. So these people were not in the crowds. They weren't even in the disciples. These were friends. They loved him for no other reason than they just loved him. They refreshed him. They listened to him and he loved them. Because look at what it says in verse 3. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. Now Jesus loves everyone. So for them to say the one you love is ill shows how close and intimate he must have been to these three. The one you love is ill. Oh, that must be Lazarus. He's the guy I love. Mary and Martha, I love them. They're the people who I have such an intimate, close relationship with. We're best mates. I think it'd be kind of cool to have the Son of God as your best mate. I mean, I know he's all our friend and all that, but wouldn't it be cool if physically on earth at the time, like, Jesus was your best mate? I mean, you would name drop a little bit, wouldn't you? I mean, like, you know, have you ever been around somebody who name drops? You know, I was just talking to such and such last week and they said casually, um, you know, or, or whatever. Like, you, like, it'd be cool to be like, what were you doing last night? Oh, it's just Jesus was around for dinner. <laughs> Jesus, oh, you know Jesus, yeah. We, we You know, we, we poured a big bottle of water but uh, it didn't stay that way very long uh, and, you know can you just drop it in and um, 
maybe that's just me, but you would, you, you know. But so, so, but let's keep going anyway. That's just my my dysfunction. Uh, verses four to six. So he said, when he heard this, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he loved them. They weren't being presumptuous when they said the one you love is ill because Jesus did love them. And so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed there where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. I have have been in ordained ministry for 12 years and at various times, at various stages, I have had a phone call Sometimes in the middle of the night, at different times, I remember three o'clock in the morning getting a phone call from a hospital or from a relative saying, Craig, can you, can you get here? When you get that call, you don't hang about. When you get that call, you don't say, well, sure, I'll see you tomorrow afternoon at some stage. You get dressed as quickly as you can and you get to the hospital because you know that you've only got a few precious moments. You know the family needs you at that point. You know that you need to get to the bedside, hold their hand, pray prayers, read scriptures and comfort them in their time. And that's why all of this seems strange when you read it at first, especially when you don't know the end of the story. Because Jesus gets the message, your best friend's really sick, Jesus. In other words, come immediately and heal him. This is urgent. They obviously assumed he would drop everything and get their ASAP. Look at what it says. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed where he was two more days. That's so strange, that first word, so. So, not but, so. But you could understand, but when he heard because he was busy. But he was, he had other appointments, but his schedule was full, but he just wasn't able to make it. So is different. Look at what it says now. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus so when he heard Lazarus was ill. It should read, Lazarus loved them. So he said to his disciples, let's leave here immediately. Let's get the high-speed donkey, put the blue light on it, and get there and heal him immediately. No, he loved him so he waited two more days. Because he loved him so much, this seems to be saying he waited. I I don't get that. Because he loved him so much, he waited. And by the time he gets there, it's four days later. 96 hours. 5,760 minutes. 345,600 seconds. And every single one of them, Mary and Martha, felt deeply, wondering where he was as they paced back and forth in the living room looking out the window opening the door saying he must be here soon he's on his way something must have held him up but he'll be here any minute because we know Jesus and, and Jesus won't let us down why, why hasn't he come calm down Mary he'll be here he will be here it will be okay why is he doing nothing why is he doing he healed other people he didn't even know and he can't even come here for us when our brother's sick 
You know, when we were when we were cooking dinner for him, he was happy enough to come into our house, wasn't he? Well, I mean, I mean, when you like, like Mary, remember the time uh, I, I, I cooked my my famous lasagna? He was happy enough to sit there. And I, I had been slaving all in the kitchen all afternoon, and and Martha, you 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 were just sitting at his feet. But we're not getting into that right now. That, that that we've put that behind us. But he was happy enough to come to our house then. So why right now when we need him the most? Can he not get here to heal our brother? And still Jesus doesn't show up. It doesn't even tell us what he was doing for those two days. It doesn't tell us that he was around healing other people. He could have been sitting there doing nothing for two days. All we know is that they were waiting for Jesus. And as they were waiting for him, his brother, their brother's health got worse. And eventually they watched him breathe his last breath. The problem is that when we come to the Bible, we know the end of the story. They didn't. They didn't know how it would finish up. All they could see was that the one they loved, the brother that they loved, was dead. And that Jesus had let them down. He had disappointed them. You see, there's two groups of people generally that we expect the most from. The people closest to us, our family, our closest friends. And those we have done the most for, because we kind of feel they owe us. We don't say it, but we kind of feel they do. Isn't that right? There's that reciprocity thing. And that's what scientists have called it. That's why when you go to certain places, people will give you, like, like you know those people from, uh, is it the Moonies or whatever, they give you a little flower or whatever when you're next. They expect because they've given you something you should give them money. Uh, and there's that sense of, well, we have done something for you. We have given you something, so you owe us. And Mary and Martha had both of those. They were close to Jesus, and they had also opened up their home to him. And the disciples had been hospitable. So their sense kind of was that Jesus owed them. They deserved his help. You see, we grew up expecting that if we do good things for God, God owes us. We never verbalize that, but we do kind of believe it, don't we? That it's kind of Christian karma. That, that, that if we're good people, and if we do good things, and if we go to church, and if we give, and we tithe, and we serve, and we do, then God owes us, and we don't say it until something bad happens to somebody who has done all those things, and then they say, you know what? That person, they, they've just been so good. Like out of all the people who deserve to get cancer, it shouldn't have been them. Out of all the people who deserve to have a tragic accident, it should not have been them. We don't express it, but we believe that if you do good things for God, then God owes you. If you go to church, if you're faithful, if you do the right thing, then the right thing happens to you. But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when your expectations are aren't met. What happens when you do good things, the right things, and try to be good people, but our life doesn't work out as you planned? We have friends coming to see us this afternoon from Dublin, Graham and Louise. Graham was my right-hand man in Dublin. He was a trustee. His wife was on my staff. And just after we left Dublin, Graham was diagnosed with cancer. And for the, for the last two years, that family, he started theological college to train for ministry. He left a great job where he was the, 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 the chief executive of a thriving organization and just as he left that started training for ordination 
They found cancer in his body. And for the last two years, he's got three little girls. He's been undergoing treatment. Why? Like, he didn't deserve that. Why does that happen? We can understand it if it happens to the terrorist or the junkie or the whatever the person who has hurt us. But why do bad things happen to good people? What happens when our expectations are here but our experience is here? And that gap between expectation and experience gets filled with disappointment, discouragement, depression and even despair. Look at verses 14 and 15 now. After two or three days, Jesus and the disciples are on the journey to Bethany to go and see Lazarus. And Jesus says, then he, that's Jesus, told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Lazarus is dead. But hold up. Rewind. That's verse 14. Look at verse 4. Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. Verse 4, It will not end in death. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. What do we do when what we see seems to completely contradict what God said? When you have a promise from God, but the current reality that you're facing in life seems so different than the promise that you have from God. When Jesus says, this is not the end, but when you look at it, it's the end. When Jesus says, this will not end in death, but when you look at it, it's dead. I mean, dead, completely dead. Gone, finished, over, done, buried. That's what it looks like here for Mary and Martha. Keep reading, verses 17 to 22. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb For four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. I bet she did. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus through clenched teeth, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a statement, but it's kind of an accusation, isn't it? But then she musters up a little bit of hope, but I know that even now, even now, God will give you what you ask. So Jesus arrives in Bethany and we're told clearly that, he, that he's been dead for four days. And that just seems like a random fact until you understand something about Jewish thinking and Jewish culture at that time. Because the Jews believed at that time that once a body died, the spirit hovered, hovered around the body for three days. And that there was still hope of resuscitation and Uh, and them coming back to life. And Jesus had done this on numerous times, hadn't he? Or a few times anyway. He had got word that a child was dead or or that somebody was dead and he went straight there and they were raised back to life. We see it in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha and different people. There was resuscitations. And so there was this sense in Jewish thinking that for three days there was still the possibility of resuscitation so when it tells us that jesus got there and the body had been dead for four days what it's telling us is this he was really really dead he was dead dead and when jesus get there gets there martha rushes out to see him at first mary stays back at the house but later she goes out too 
And even with their two different personalities and two different temperaments, if you look, they both say exactly the same words to Jesus. Martha, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're expressing this mixture of faith and frustration. And I feel that sometimes. Faith and frustration. They had complete faith that Jesus could have healed their brother. But they're frustrated that he didn't. And I think we all experience that because we know that God can do anything. If I say to you, can God do anything? Oh, yes, he can. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is good all the time. As long as he's doing it. But what happens when he doesn't do it? What happens when you know God can heal that family member, but they seem to be getting more and more sick? What happens when you believe that God can reconcile that relationship, but it seems to be falling apart? What happens when you believe that God can provide for your needs, but the debts seem to be piling up more and more? What happens when you believe that God can bring a husband or wife into your life, but you're 39 and single, and the the last four guys you went out with are in prison? Like, what do you do? Visit the prison. Amen. There's a woman who thinks on her feet. Eh, Norman? You're a lucky man. Once you got out, you got married. Um, prison ministry from the inside. Eh? You know, we live in that tension. We live in the tension because we believe as God's people that by his word he can do anything. And yet with our natural sight and with our experience, we don't always see the everything. He can do, but he doesn't always seem to do And as far as Mary and Martha were concerned, it's now too late. Because look at what they say, if only. If only you'd been here. Jesus, if only you'd come sooner. If only you'd just made a bit more effort. If only you hadn't taken so long. You can hear the disappointment in their voices. Jesus hadn't come through for them. You can hear them saying, like Jesus, you've... I don't want to say it out loud, but you've let us down. You've failed us. Can I tell you something that you won't often hear in church? And don't stone me for this just yet. But if you follow Jesus, sometimes you're going to be disappointed in him. You won't hear that on God TV, probably. Just being honest, I'm not knocking God TV. You won't hear it in many churches. But if you've been following Jesus long enough, at some stage you will face disappointment in your life. And it may even be disappointment with him because he hasn't done what you wanted him to do. He hasn't met your expectations. He hasn't answered your prayers. And your heart is broken and you've lost something or you've lost someone and it feels like God hasn't come through for you. Sometimes you'll not get that job that you're longing for. Sometimes things don't work out as you've hoped or planned. Sometimes that relationship will fall apart. Sometimes the test that you want to come back negative will come back positive. And for others of you, the test that you're desperately longing to come back positive keeps coming back negative. 
And what's worse is that everybody around you seems to, to live in the state of perpetual bliss of answered prayer. And you're doing your best to rejoice with those who rejoice, but really you just want to crawl into a corner because you are sick of hearing about the miracles in their life. When God seems to be spending so much time looking after them that he's forgotten about you. When God seems to be so busy blessing them that he's given them all the blessings and you've gotten none of them. And you start to think, is this something I have done as God against me? Have I done something wrong? Why is he not doing anything? You know, I have experienced this at different times in my life. I really, the first time I really experienced it was when I I went to theological college. Some of you may have heard me share this before. I had, through my teens and 20s, knew I was called to, to do this, to do what I'm doing. And so at 27, I gave up my, my job with Unilever. It was a great job. I gave back my lovely company car. And I went back to being a student in, in Dublin and uh, living on a grant. And I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I've sacrificed so much for God. And, and I, you know, he's just going to bless me. I'm going to be like the next Billy Graham, Benny Hinn, and T.D. Jakes rolled into one. And just, it's just going to be blessed, you know. I'm going to wake up with the angels every day, river dancing on the duvet. It's just going to be, that's just going to be my life because I have given up so much for him. And I went down to Dublin to train for theological college and Two months in, I found myself at the lowest place in my life, at that stage that I'd ever been. Just a depression and a cloud came over me, and I'd never really experienced depression before that. And every time I got up, and it was so heavy upon me, and every night I went to bed, and it was so heavy upon me. Those of you who have experienced any form of depression knows what, know what that's like. You wake up, and you just are in a fog. You don't want to even... You just want to stay under the covers. You just want to get through each day. In two months at Theological College, I I lost nearly two stone. I remember coming home at Christmas and sitting in my old room in my parents' house and lying on the bed and and just crying out to God, God, this isn't how it was meant to be. And God, if this doesn't change, I, I can't stay here. I've got to go back to my old job because this is not how. I can't, I actually physically, my body cannot do this any longer. And I didn't know what it was. But I cried out and I cried out and I cried out. And for two months I'd been crying out and God had done nothing. And when you're in that place, it's so hard to pray. You feel like your prayers are going nowhere. And it's so easy just to isolate yourself. And and I'll chat sometime while there about this. But over the next three months, I came out of that. But what I realized was this. That God had never promised me it would be easy. He never told me anywhere in his word that if I made sacrifices for him that I would have a life of success and happiness. His word never promises that we won't go through dark valleys. In fact, it says just the opposite. When I go through the valley of the shadow, not if. In this world, you might have trouble. No, you will have trouble. He promised that if we obey him, we will suffer, we will be persecuted, we will be misunderstood, and at times we will struggle. It wasn't that God had failed me. It was that my false expectations of God had failed me. And some of you need to hear that this morning in that place of disappointment. 
God hasn't failed you. Your false expectations of God have failed you. God didn't need me or need to change my expectations. Change to meet my expectations. Rather, my expectations needed to change to be more in line with what God's word said. And for some of you this morning, maybe you feel like God has let you down, that things haven't turned out the way they you expected that it wasn't meant to be this way. You feel disappointed and frustrated. And I, I want to say to you, if that's you, deal with your disappointments honestly. Don't cover them over. In churches, we sometimes gloss this stuff over. We think if we just say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, everything's good all the time, that it'll go away. It doesn't. That actually just leads to it being worse. Maybe your disappointment comes from grieving a loss in your life, a loss of a person. But you know, there's other losses that I've discovered. There's other grieving that we go through in life. It could be a divorce. The loss of a husband or wife in your life. It could be the shattering of a lifelong dream. It could be someone that betrays you. It could be the loss of a church that you were part of. I know some of you in the room have experienced that. Many of you actually from different churches have experienced the grieving of losing a church that you had poured your life into. And it's even made you reticent to come here at times because you're thinking, well, if it happened there, it might happen here. Loss of friendships, people who you thought you would do life with forever and then you find out that they've betrayed you. That is one of the most deeply hurtful things you will ever experience. But then there's other more natural losses. For some of you, it's just the loss of youthfulness. As you're not able to do the things you used to do, as your skin gets older, as your body gets more tired, and you just, you just want to be able to do all the things you were able to do 20 years ago. Maybe you move away and you, you, you've lost some close relationships and some friendships. Maybe it's the loss of your children empty nest as they go off to university or off in life and they don't seem to need you the way they used to and you feel a bit useless because for, for 18 years or 20 years your life revolved around these little people who became bigger people and now they're off doing their own thing and you don't really know what to do with yourself anymore it could be the loss of a pet a faithful pet dies and, and you're, you grieve and those of you who don't have pets like me, I find that hard to understand. But I actually, I do. But I, I also, from talking to you, have had to learn to at least look sympathetic. Because, <laughs> honestly, because it is a real loss. It genuinely is. I'm being honest. It is a real loss. I, some of you have lost beloved pets. And I do my best to conduct a really nice funeral. Um, <laughs> I don't do animal funerals. Unless the money's right. Um, <laughs> MP3, that was a joke. Um, but loss is loss. And, and in this life, loss is normal. Uh, you know, we, we, we struggle with it because loss was never meant to be part of our existence. We were created to live forever, and that's why. I mean, one out of one people die. And yet, why is it everybody, every time somebody dies, we act as if it shouldn't be that way? It's because deep down in our souls, we know it shouldn't be that way. We were created to live forever. And so that's why loss, even though it is part of every human's existence, is so hard and so shocking for us because we were never created to die. 
And I would say to you, just allow yourself to go through the loss. Don't try and band-aid it. Don't try and put superficial plasters over it. There's no shortcuts. Pour out your heart to God. And that's what Mary and Martha do. They express their disappointment and loss of only. Have you ever said or thought that? If only. If only. If only is all about the past. It's all about what could have been, should have been, would have been if only things had been different. If only my parents had stayed together. If only I'd met someone and got married. If only I'd got that job. If only I'd made a better decision back then. If only we had a child. If only my husband hadn't cheated. It's okay to ask if only, but that's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to finish. Because if only doesn't change anything about the way things actually are. If only doesn't change anything about reality. If only just reflects disappointments. And while it's important to express them and get them out there, once you get them out there, your life is still exactly the same. If only. If only doesn't change a thing. And if you stay, here's what I've discovered in my own life through some of the stuff I've been through and through pastoring and through watching, if you stay at if only, you get stuck in regret. You get stuck in the past. You get stuck in sadness. And you know what I've discovered? If you stay stuck in sadness long enough, that sadness becomes depression. I'm not saying all depression is this. Sometimes depression is a chemical imbalance. But often depression... In many cases, depression is where you've internalized sadness from the past for so long. And instead of sadness being an emotion that you feel occasionally, it becomes the norm of your personality. And it's because you got stuck somewhere and haven't dealt with, if only. And at some stage you need to move past, if only, to hope. Because if Christians are meant to be a people of anything, we are a people of hope. That God has more for you in the future. That the past can give birth to the new. That the loss, yes, it is significant and it is painful, but it is not the end. And if you don't allow your heart to become hard towards God, if you will move past, if only, to I hope, you will come through and find new life on the other side. And that's what Mary and Martha did as we come to the end. Verses 21 to 24. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha here moves from talking about the past, if only to talking about the future. I know he will on the last day. If only you had been, I know he will. And that's what we do sometimes. Many of us live our lives in the past, if only, and many of us live our lives in someday. For a lot of us, our favorite day of the week isn't Friday or Saturday or Sunday. It's someday. It's one day. If this happens, I'll be happy. 
If this works out, I'll be happy. If I could find a husband, I'd be happy. If I could find a job, I'd be happy. If I could find another husband because I didn't like that one, I'd be happy. If I could just get a house, I'd be happy. If I could get a pay raise and work, I'd be happy. If we could have children, I'd be happy. If I could, if I could, if I could, then I would be. But what about right here? What about right now? You see, there's half the people in this room, I think, living if only, and there's another half of the people living someday. But what about right now? Because look at what Jesus says to her. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Not past tense, not future tense, present tense. Right here, right now, today, in this moment, Jesus says, I am. I am. That's God's personal name, how he revealed himself to Moses when I go to Egypt and says, who sent me? What is your name? He says, I am. And Moses went, what? I am who I am. He is not only the God of the past, And he is not only the God of the future. He is the present reality in our lives. Right here in this moment, he is everything we need. I am is with us. Yes, he's the God of history. Yes, he's the God of the past. Yes, he's the God of the future. But most of all, he is I am. And there's nothing he did in the past that he can't do today. And there's nothing that he, we have in the future when we get to heaven that we can't experience some measure of now. When Jesus talked about raising Lazarus from the dead, Martha was thinking about the future. One day when we get to heaven and there's a resurrection, then we'll experience it. And Jesus says, you know what? You don't have to wait for someday. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. Because resurrection is not about a place. It's not about a destination. It's not about a future reality. Resurrection is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. It isn't about going somewhere. It's about experiencing someone Jesus says to us this morning right now, I am your healer. I am your deliverer. I am the one who can set you free. I am the one who can change your life. So stop putting off and deferring what I want to do today, thinking it's for the future, or stop thinking it's something I did in the past. I am, I'm here, and I want to do something in your life. Look at what Jesus said. This will not end in death. But then he gets there and Lazarus has been dead for four days. This will not end in death. Lazarus is dead. Which one is it? It's both were true. Lazarus was really dead. He wasn't just pretending. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't lying really still with his eyes closed for four days. He was dead. But when the resurrection and the life appears on the scene, what looks dead, what feels dead, what seems dead, what is dead, comes back to life because it just looks like it's taken a sleep. It isn't death, it's dormant. And there are some things in your life that you think are dead, but they're just dormant because the resurrection is going to speak to those things and bring them back to life. You see, the humanity's biggest fear and biggest question has always been how do we defeat death? It affects everyone. It's the question that if 
somebody could have come up with a cure for death, they would be a multi-trillionaire. And yet, the answer to death is not found in a product or a formula or a belief or a religion. It's found in a person and his name is Jesus who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the death I should have died and he rose from the grave conquering sickness, sin, death and hell. He's on the right hand of the Father and one day he's coming back and he is the only one who has truly conquered death. He defeated death. He caused death to die. He brought life. And as Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And so yes, this heart and my body might stop beating one day. And this finely honed muscular body might one day shrivel up in a box, in a hole in the ground. But that will not be me. That will just be my body because the Bible says there is part of me, my soul, my spirit that will never die because Christ has raised it to life. And as Christians, we need to be more secure in that hope than ever before in a hopeless world where people around us are dying, where people around us are sick. We need to know that death is not a full stop. If you're a Christian, it is a comma. It is a pause where you transition from this life into the next, where you're promoted We need to be a people who really get this. I am not afraid of death. Becky will tell you that by my drive and I'm really not afraid of death. She is, I'm not. I am not. Because it doesn't matter. I'm here and with the Lord. I don't know which one I prefer. Some days I'd rather be here, some days I'd rather be there. For now he's keeping me here. Cool. Really, that's what Paul said, isn't it? And I really mean it. I, I don't care. Either way, I win. It's a win-win. Oh, you could almost preach this stuff. Oh, what time is it? Dad, you've got time. Um, verses 38 to 40. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man by this time there's a bad odour for he has not used right garden 14 days that's the message version then Jesus said did I tell you that did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God so Jesus reaches the tomb after four days he says take away the stone and she says you can't do that it's stinking in there and actually the King James version says he stinketh and I love that. That's a fridge magnet for those of you who have teenage boys. Put that in their door. He stinketh. True story. The Greek word is pui. Um, that was a joke. He stinketh. But you notice Jesus isn't put off by the mess of the stink. And I find that so comforting because sometimes there's so much mess and so much stink in my life and Jesus isn't put off by it. In fact, he moves towards the mess. He stretches towards the stink. And if you have mess in your life and if you have stink in your life and we all do in some area of our life, I want to tell you that Jesus doesn't repel bad, he isn't repulsed bad, but he moves towards it because he wants to reach into that place and bring wholeness and life and healing and restoration and resurrection. He isn't squeamish, he isn't prudish. He says, roll back the stone because that's the very place that I want to bring new life. So they took away the stone, verse 41. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, Thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. 
But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let them go. I have a good friend, Clara. She was Clara Wilson. She was called Clara Costley. Some of you know Clara. She sings at a lot of weddings and funerals. She was in Shankill Parish. And Clara told me a story a number of years ago where she was asked to sing at a funeral. And the song she was asked to sing was Somewhere Over a Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. And this was fine, but they didn't have anyone to play it, so they got the backing tracks of the CD, and the rehearsal went fine. But on the day of the funeral, the person who was putting on the CD happened to put on the wrong track, and instead of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, they put on Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. (laughs) How to ruin a funeral. But you know, Jesus ruined every funeral I ever went to. Do you notice that in the Gospels? Every time Jesus turns up at a funeral, he ruins it. He even ruined his own. Here in John 11, at the funeral of Lazarus, he's not going to let it go as planned. The stone's rolled away. He says a prayer. Then look at what he does. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Can you imagine being at great uncle Robert's funeral and everybody's gathered around the Seagull Cemetery? Lurgan Cemetery and the body's just been lowered into the ground and the, the mud has just been sprinkled ashes to ashes, dust to dust and some guy rolls up and goes Bob, come out! <laughs> Bob, come out! You'd think he was mad and you'd probably be right unless that man's name was Jesus because when Jesus speaks his voice has complete authority over death He can make dead people live. He stands at a tomb and shouts a grave-shaking word of life. And that which was dead comes back to life. Because it's not over that Jesus says it's over. And you know, in your life right now, there's some things that look like they're finished, that they're done, that they're dead, that it seems impossible. But I want to say to you this morning, it's not finished that Jesus says it's finished. He always has the last word. He always has the last word. And when Jesus speaks, everything shifts. Everything changes. Hope is restored. Death becomes life. Power is released. Somebody has said this as well as Jesus was specific and shouted, Lazarus, come out. Otherwise, every dead person within 20 miles would have got out of the grave. That's how much power his voice has. Last verses really mean it this time. Verses 43 and 44. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He watched that quirky film a while ago, The Exotic Marigold Hotel. I, I love it. it. Is it Judy Dench and, and uh, Maggie Smith? And there's a line on it that the Indian, one of the Indian characters says, and I, I just, it's one of my favourite lines. He says this, when things aren't going well, he says this, it will all work out in the end, and if it hasn't worked out, it's obviously not the end. With Jesus, I want to say to you, it will all work out in the end. In this life or the next. And if you're here this morning and it feels like it hasn't worked out, I want to say to you, it's not the end. Because Jesus always has the last word. And it's not over till he says it's over.
See, our trust has to be in someone, not something. Our trust can't be in our circumstances or in an outcome. Our trust is in a person. It can't even be in in everything going well. It's in Jesus. Our trust is in Jesus. Psalm 27, David's going through a very difficult time, but look at how he, he finishes it. His family have turned against him. He's brokenhearted and betrayed. And he says this, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I remain confident of this. Listen to a sermon recently, and this is my last story. And uh, it was by a preacher who travels a lot, and he was saying when he travels, he loves football, and when he travels, he records football matches. But before he watches them back, he finds out the score. And he only watches them if his team wins. And somebody said to him, like, why would you do that? Like, why would you only watch it? Like, would it not ruin it for you? Does it not spoil it to know the result before you watch? But he said this. He said, actually, it makes the game better because I know that no matter how badly the game is going, no matter how far behind we are, no matter how many men we're down, no matter how many knocks we're we're taking, no matter how much it looks like we might be defeated, I know that at the end we're going to win. And he says, I know I'm back in the winning side when I do that. And then he said this, and this is, he said, when you know the end result, that profoundly affects how you perceive and deal with the setbacks during the game. Church, I'm here to tell you that no matter what's coming against you today, no matter how terrible things might look in your life, no matter how many knocks you've had, how defeated you feel, I want to tell you that you're on the winning side and that you can have complete confidence in Jesus Christ because the result is already determined and you have nothing to fear. He is the resurrection and the life and those who believe in him will never die. He has defeated death. He has conquered the grave. And so I just want to say to you, what have you given up hope for today? Or what are you struggling to find hope for? 